On this episode of Gridlock Break, we're hearing from Dr. Andrew von Eschenbach, who formerly led the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA regulates food and medicine, and they're at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus. Dr. von Eschenbach is going to explain how innovators across the country are rising to meet this challenge, both by applying existing therapies to fight the virus now and developing new therapies and vaccines to fight it in the near future. Let's hear from Dr. von Eschenbach about how this process will unfold over the coming months. Thank you very much, Nancy. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. We're grateful to have today Dr. Andrew Van Eschenbach, who's president of the Samaritan Health Initiatives uh, with us today. He has a, uh, a unique perspective, I think, to offer, given that he served as the commissioner for the uh, Food and Drug Administration from 2005 until 2009. Um, I will say this, we're going to be on a tight schedule today because uh, Dr. Eschenbach has a a hard 4.30 Eastern uh, departure time that he needs to uh, adhere to, to to make a phone call. Um, if you have any questions or statements to follow up on, please go ahead and send them forth to uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus. I would just ask today, if uh, if you have questions, try to make them as uh, crisp uh, and clear as they can so that we can get it in as many of those in our allotted time. And with that, without further ado, Dr. Eschenbach, thank you and uh, welcome. Thank you, Don. And thank you to No Labels for the uh, opportunity to share a perspective with you. Comments you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, I do apologize for the hard stop, but in fact, it's because of uh, an urgent teleconference around an effort that's underway to really support the Food and Drug Administration. As you can imagine, uh, that agency is responsible for regulating 24% of everything we consume. So all of the diagnostic tests, all of the issues around masks and ventilators and all of the protective equipment, all of the issues having to do with vaccines and biologics, uh, possibilities for antibodies, et cetera, all of that uh, rests with the Food and Drug Administration. And they have been really heroic, in my opinion, and responding to the incredible demand. Uh, they're working 24-7, but we're really looking for opportunities to support that agency and its mission. Uh, they're getting a huge number, thank goodness, thank God, of uh, interest in applications for innovative strategies uh, that will be able to allow us to cope with this virus and most of us have been following the news, have realized that they have been rolling out uh, these opportunities at a very rapid rate, not reckless, but rapid. And they've been doing that under their emergency use authorizations, as well as their expanded access or what we describe as compassionate use. So my point simply is we're in the midst of a crisis. Uh, there is an enormous opportunity for the investment that we've made over decades in research and development in places like MD Anderson and Stanford and other, other institutions to really pay off now with uh, coming forward a solution to the problem. And the agency is working very hard to make sure that the American people access those solutions at the earliest possible time while being confident that they're going to be effective and and, and safe for the indication. Uh, Dr. Eschenbach, let me ask you about uh, the introduction of uh, 
therapeutics, and then ultimately vaccine. I think we've heard a variety of timeframes associated with that, and I find it to be very confusing. Can you uh, enlighten us on that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, a simple way of beginning to think about this is uh, we'll divide the opportunities up into two categories. There are those things that are emerging that are very much at the very front end of research for which there has not been adequate uh, clinical trials in human beings. They're coming out of laboratories. They may have a lot of preclinical data to support their feasibility, data that's been developed in animal models, et cetera. So those kinds of interventions, be they vaccines or be they biologics or antivirals, they require a great deal of scrutiny, a great deal of evidence, a great deal of effort to bring them to the point where one, they can be approved, and then two, they can be scaled up through manufacturing to be able to meet the demands of the population. Those kinds of things, and the, and the vaccines fall into that category, take a long time. So what you're hearing when the discussion of vaccines uh, comes up is we've made huge progress on the front end, and I'll be specific about that. As soon as this virus was recognized, we were able with modern techniques and modern technologies around genomics, et cetera, to unravel the genetic makeup of this virus. That gave to investigators a number of potential targets where they could begin to start to direct a vaccine to be able to attack that virus using that target. One of the popular ones is this virus happens to have a little spike protein on its surface that allows it to attach uh, to cells and infect them. And a lot of the vaccines are being developed to attack that spike protein and in doing so stop the virus from being able to attach and infect you. Those timelines can vary. Uh, some of those timelines, depending on the techniques employed, could take six months or more. Some of them may take a year or more. The other category is that we have a number of opportunities across the spectrum of antivirals, biologics, cell therapies, where these products are actually already being used. They're already, if you will, approved and available, but they're available for other indications, other diseases. They've never been either approved or used against this virus. So those things can be fast-tracked in a much more uh, rapid way. And you're seeing that play out with regard to the fact that early on, there was some indication that drugs being used to fight malaria and a drug being used to fight uh, upper respiratory tract infections could be repurposed to fight this coronavirus. So that brought us hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, the malaria drugs, and the ZPAC or azithromycin, which has been commonly uh, prescribed by physicians for patients with bacterial infections in their upper respiratory tract. And hopefully uh, what's happening there is we don't have the end development issues that we have like with vaccines. All we really have to face is making 
sure that we get clinical evidence uh, through uh, a variety of ways of, of doing that uh, to then be able to know how well is it working, which patients does it work best in, in terms of what stage of their disease, and how might we be able to then uh, expand upon that. So long answer to a very critically important question that the timelines depend upon what the nature of the product is and what the pathway is to the point where we can comfortably and confidently uh, allow it to be used in humans with the expectation of success. Folks, the floor is open for questions. Well, I have a question. Uh, a vaccine, of course, prevents you from getting a disease. Are there things in the works that can cure it once you have it? Because vaccines don't often work, or they might work, but they seldom work on the disease after you get it. So what about a Correct. cure for the disease if you have it? Correct. And, and that's exactly, I think, uh, to the heart of the matter, is that as we're in the process of developing a vaccine so that we can inoculate the population and prevent them from getting an infection at some point in time in the future, like next year. Right now, a lot of attention has to be directed to what can we do to actually kill or control the virus. And there's two ways that that's being thought of. One is attack the virus directly, do something to it that changes or alters it in a way that it can't infect you. It can't uh, in any way, shape, or form, harm you. You're hearing people talk about uh, immune serum or having patients who recovered from the virus where it's clear that their immune system did something, produced something that counteracted that virus. So we're taking their serum and looking for the antibodies that they have been able to produce. And then if we can take that antibody and scale it up, that could be immediately delivered uh, to someone who's threatened uh, by the virus. The other strategies go along the lines of the antivirals, the kind of things we're talking about with regard to uh, remdesivir, where you can come up with a drug that um, will directly interfere with how the virus works, what it does when it tries to take over your cell and multiply itself. So that directly attacks the machinery of the virus. And then there's some interesting things that are occurring around uh, strategies that have been used for cancer in which when a cancer cell develops, they often, uh, those cancer cells often put a little red flag on the surface of the cancer cell that the body could recognize from the point of view of its immune system. So there are cells circulating around in, in the body, uh, white blood cells that are called NK cells, natural killer cells. They don't need to be armed uh, by being exposed to the virus or to cancer cell. They immediately can recognize the enemy by virtue of a little red flag on the surface of the cell and immediately attack it. It turns out that uh, these NK cells play a very important role in protecting us against infection and uh, from bacteria and from viruses. 
And interestingly enough, most of the NK cells uh, in the in the body happen to the largest population of them happen to be in the lungs. So we know that the NK cell plays an important role in protecting us against a lung infection like this virus. And there's effort to now uh, deliver in a research setting these natural killer cells. So they will immediately directly attack a cell that's been infected by the virus and prevent that virus from replicating. So to your important point, uh, Pitch, there are vaccines to prevent, and then there are multiple opportunities to destroy or kill or neutralize the virus directly. And they could be available for immediate therapy, especially for the people who have been infected and who are getting sick. Thank you. Uh, I have two questions. Um, one, um, what incentives can we provide to pharmaceutical or biotech companies to scale up in advance of an approval? So that if they wind up do getting approved for a drug, we've got scalable you know, quantities or we're ahead of the curve there. And two, uh, I wanted to know if you had a view on the tuberculosis vaccine, uh, because there's starting to be some evidence that that could have some prophylactic effect. With regard to the first part of your important question, uh, there are a number of ways I think we could and should uh, be doing that. And we had this experience back early on, uh, for example, when I was commissioner of Food and Drug Administration with regard to uh, facing the threat of avian influenza, H5N1 at the time. First and foremost, it's the opportunity for the federal government, which it has in this case, to issue the emergency uh, use authorization. That changes the rules under which these pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies uh, have to operate, particularly as it relates to their um, implementation of good manufacturing practices. It, it doesn't mean that they can do this indiscriminately and without any controls or regulations, but a lot of the uh, bureaucratic steps that are associated with that are, are eliminated so they can um, scale up their manufacturing processes working under a more restrictive, I shouldn't say restrictive, but a, a more uh, truncated set of, of rules. The second thing is that the uh, Food and Drug Administration uh, that sets those rules can work in tandem with the companies at the outset. So that it becomes a partnership at the very beginning in which the expectation of the regulator and the act, action on the part of the producer are hand in glove, as opposed to the, the manufacturer going down the road, submitting it to the FDA to them, for them to sit and review and decide whether they in fact will accept that or not. And if not, then the cycle starts all over again. We wanna cut out those unnecessary revolutions in the cycle by getting it right. Uh, it's, it's quality by design, essentially. And then uh, the third thing where it may be necessary is to provide the kind of incentives or the kind of resources that the company will need to scale 
especially if this has not been a particular production line or product line that they already have uh, in place. And it's just a matter of flipping a switch. They may need to retool uh, in some ways, including as simple as uh, retooling the vials in which these um, the uh, products have to be placed, et cetera. So a comprehensive approach to the important question that you raise is as things are going on in research and development, we want things to be going on in manufacturing and dissemination. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Important question. And, and the, 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 the second question oh. was with, with regard to the tuberculosis vaccine in some countries that have been, you know, there's some evidence early, very, very early on um, that in countries where there's been the vaccine given to their general population, they're seeing some resistance. I, I, I must confess, I don't have any uh, current or up-to-date data or insight into that particular uh, opportunity. Uh, I, I think what um, it raises, though, is the important point you're making is that we're seeing um, effort occurring in a variety of places. And I think it's really incumbent that the big challenge now is to make sure we're providing the kind of leadership, the kind of organization that enables us to separate signal from noise, to be able to hone in on those clues like the one you're alluding to around a vaccine for malaria and a drug for malaria like hydroxychloroquine to really understand and know, is it having the direct effect that we uh, think it might? And, and can we be confident in that? So um, again, my hard stop, uh, I apologize at the end of the half hour, is because we're addressing precisely that, how to create those kind of portals where we pick up the signal of something that's working as quickly and as uh, easily as possible, and then capitalize on it, exploit that, and take it to the next level so that we get whatever that effective treatment is, a vaccine for malaria or a, a drug that was being used for something else or a, 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 an immune therapy for cancer, whatever it is, we got to get it and get it now. So I have a, uh, what might be a naive question here. Uh, I was wondering, I've heard that uh, heat, that during the summer, we expect that maybe the coronavirus infection won't spread as quickly. But does it make sense to turn up the heat in buildings to perhaps uh, minimize the spread while people are uh, going about their business? Yeah, you know, those are tough questions because this virus we've not seen before. And we don't really know exactly how it's going to behave. Uh, we're assuming because it's a part of a family of other viruses that it might behave like they, they generally do. But we don't know that for sure. So there's the hope at this point that um, climate may play a role and it's generally a combination of warm and humid as opposed to cold and dry as it relates to these seasonal kinds of viral uh, uh, cycles. And so the first part of it is uh, we don't know that temperature is going to be the answer. We're hoping that it will behave that way. We don't know what temperature 
um, that might involve. And we and we don't know what role the humidity plus the temperature would play in that. And then third and, and um, e equally important is we would not know what temperature to decide to allow that building to reach. And it may be that if as long as the air conditioning is keep you know is is not how do I want to put this, not creating a winter-like atmosphere in the building, but you know a seventy-degree atmosphere that that may be fine. So it's really a tough question, simply because there's so much about this virus we don't know. But it really is the kind of thinking that we have to have the out of box thinking which is asking questions if this is true maybe we can do that and so if it's true i i would be the first one to turn the thermostat up in my house ron shake i see you on the phone from boston um any comments or questions um you know i i less a question and if you like a comment, you know, it's an, it's a fascinating time. In one moment, you know, my view, we're showing our weakness as a nation and our inability to set a course and hold to that course with stability. On the other hand, we're seeing American spirit and American innovation begin to take hold and, and you know, give us, give us some confidence. And I very much appreciate, as one listener, your willingness to share with us your perspectives on that innovation and the possibilities that we have to actually figure out how to avoid um, what we're seeing. Well, I I, I couldn't um, I couldn't thank you more for for that perspective. I am literally in awe of what I see emerging across this country with regard to that spirit of ingenuity, that creativity, that willingness to respond to a challenge. It's, it's what's made this country so great. And it's, it's showing itself again. And I'll, I'll give you one simple example of it that basically floored me yesterday. So we've all been aware of this tremendous uh, crisis in uh, the, uh, having sufficient number of ventilators for the um, spike that New York and others may be uh, are experiencing and will experience. Um, people at MIT, uh, together with an automobile manufacturer in Ohio that's not making uh, electric cars right this moment, uh, all these pieces come together. And one of the things that we have a lot of that are all over uh, hospitals and ambulances and everything else are these ambu bags, the bags that you've seen, uh, you've you squeeze by hand, and you can ventilate uh, a patient in an emergency setting. Um, there, they've come up with a way of taking those ambu bags and putting them into um, a, a frame that has an arm on it that can press on the bag just like your hand would, but they can do it with control. They can control flow, they can control pressure, they can control uh, frequency or number of, of breaths. If that, and they can, they're 
indicating that they can produce 40,000 of those uh, a month. But my point is, we're stepping up and we're thinking outside the box and we're looking at things that uh, we would have never used it that way before, uh, but we can use it that way now if we put the software. So they got to work with software developers. They've got um, the engineering to get the mechanics right so that the arm pushes on the bag in the right way. And, and that's America rising to the occasion. Um, now, you know, we can't impose some of the population uh, restrictions that China may have, where they literally summarily imprisoned people. Um, that's just not our way of life. But what we're seeing is people are imprisoning themselves voluntarily. We may have had to remind our teenagers that they had a little bit more responsibility along those lines, but but folks are 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 doing what they need to do without um, a draconian uh, effort on the part of the government. So I think that's both sides of that equation is but it's what makes America America and what we should be proud of. Folks, I think we're getting toward the end of our time. Perhaps one more question for uh, Dr. Uh, Eschenbach. I'm Michael Small from um, Denver at the moment. Um, as far as data collection, um, what what type of data would you most like to see would be most helpful? Yeah. Uh, to, to the point of the next phone call for me. So one of the things that's occurring right now is that uh, the data points, the FDA is, is resolving uh, the critical data points that need to be collected uniformly across the board. So we're a distributed system. There are many uh, hospitals, institutions, uh, different levels of infrastructure that are engaged in the delivery of these interventions that are being permitted through emergency use and through compassionate use or the uh, exploratory IND. And so what we would like and what we want is to be able to disseminate a template that everybody uses so that the data can be uniform and consistent, not burdensome in terms of acquiring every little piece of data, but what the critical and essential pieces of data are uh, so that it is facile and easily obtained. How can we capitalize on what's been occurring over the past few years with the rollout of electronic medical records and the fact that many now healthcare systems, hospitals, physicians' practices are on an electronic uh, medical record basis. So we need to link those and coordinate the flow of information from those to a, a central repository. Um, by the end of this week, there will be uh, work along those lines with a portal where that information can be uh, acquired. And the concept is we want to acquire data, aggregate it, analyze it, and act upon it. And so that effort is underway right now, but your point is extremely well taken. It is the data uh, that emanates from the experience that will give us what we need to know in order to act and act effectively and efficiently to solve this crisis. Yeah, I have a question for you, sir. Um, you know, 
I'd, I'd love your opinion as a former FDA commissioner. Would we, there's been a great debate about the role of the FDA, um, CDC, and the degree to which nationally or federally driven sourcing and, and management would facilitate the, the local efforts that are occurring at the regional and the, and the state levels. And I, I would love your, your, your perspectives on what works, um, having been there. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, that, that we should have had that question at the beginning because it's a long answer. Uh, simply stated, uh, I, after my seven years in government, I am absolutely convinced that the role of government is not to do everything, but to make sure everything gets done. The doing occurs in a distributed network. It occurs in the medical institutions that we've invested in and that we support. It occurs in the companies and startups and more mature ones that we have as part of our infrastructure. That's where the doing gets done. But there needs to be an overarching coordination and organization to that. So that's government's role. And government's role can be to facilitate or to regulate, but not regulate unnecessarily, but to regulate to keep order you know, out of chaos. So I, I see it as a partnership uh, where it's the government working hand in hand with the private sector. These concept of public-private partnerships is the way that we should be managing healthcare and we should be managing crises like the one we're facing right now. Dr. Eschenbach, we want to be respectful of your time. We very much appreciate your being with us today. We know you have yet more to do this afternoon, and uh, we hope we can have you back again in the future. Uh, my pleasure. You know, America's always won these fights before. We're going to win this one as well, and we're going to do it as rapidly as we possibly can. And the reason for it is no matter how we're coming at this, there's one thing that bonds us together, and that is that there are people who are suffering and dying out there, and we're going to make some, we're going to make a difference in that because that's what's most important. So thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to share a few thoughts about uh, the FDA and where we are in this fight. Thank you. Can't help but think that, that no labels exist to bring us together um, politically, at least, if not socially, uh, as a country, and it's been kind of scaling uphill. And isn't it ironic that here this illness? Uh, is bringing us together maybe in ways that we never even imagined. So there are ways to make lemonade out of those lemons. Uh, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. And uh, many years ago, I participated in a conference, and I'll end with this and thanking you. And the question that was posed to the participants is, what will it finally take to bring all the peoples of the world together? And the answer that someone posed was, it would be to discover life on another planet because at that point, it would be us earthlings against them. because seem to have as part of our human nature the need to always be us against them. Well, my answer was, we don't need to discover life on another planet to find a common enemy of humanity. That enemy is here right now within us and among us. That enemy is disease. And whether it's cancer or heart disease or coronavirus, that's what will bond the peoples of the world together in this endeavor. 
That's who our enemy should be, not each other. As you heard, the work to find both treatments and a vaccine for coronavirus is moving forward at breakneck speed. As Dr. von Eschenbach points out, we're in the fight of our lives, but we have American ingenuity on our side. That ingenuity has gotten us through so many difficult times before, and it can do so again. But we need citizens and our leaders to embrace a different kind of politics, a politics of problem solving, where people from across the political spectrum come together behind the only mission that matters for Americans right now, stopping this virus, saving lives, getting people back to work. Learn more about how No Labels is bringing together a coalition of leaders working to solve America's problems at nolabels.org. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.